Well, I'd like to welcome all of you to part four of Chasing Carrots. This sermon series with a weird name is all about finding joy and happiness in life. And we really believe that this is an important series, and the feedback that we've gotten on it also tends to support that, that this is a series that is really needed in our time and in our culture, because all of us are looking for joy and looking for happy, but so many of us, the majority of us in our culture, haven't been able to find it. That joy is like a carrot out in front of us, and we're like hamsters, giving a whole bunch of time, energy, and focus, running around, getting sweaty, <laughs> and yet never actually getting or finding that which we are looking for. And the idea behind this series is that we have really good news to share with you, that lasting joy and lasting happiness is possible. But it may just mean that you need to look for it in a different place and in a different way. And so one of the statements that has kind of been the backbone to this entire series is one um, that you've seen before, and I'll, I'll show it to you again. It's this, that lasting joy is found not by looking around at things of this world or the circumstances of life or who I am or what I have from an earthly perspective, but instead lasting joy is found by looking up and looking at the perspective that the Lord has given to us. And when we do that, joy is absolutely possible. This week in our message, um, we're going to be taking a look at something that I believe is the most in-your-face, predominant pursuit that the people in the American culture have. It's finding joy and satisfaction and identity and happy through the accumulation of money and stuff. Money and things. Now, the interesting part about this is I'm sure that if I were to ask for a show of hands, of all of you who believe that money and stuff can bring you happy, or at least lasting happiness, none of you would probably raise your hand, or at least very few of you, okay? But if I were to follow you around for an entire year, which first of all would be kind of creepy, but if I did and I watched how you use your time, how I use my time, or how you, uh, what you do, or how you talk, or what you think about the most, I think our lives might show a very different priority and a very different focus than what our hands might show whether we raise them or not. And the truth of the matter is, is that this pursuit, this pursuit of money and stuff, is one that is especially, I would say, dangerous and tempting in the world, not in the world, but in the culture and in the country that we live in. Did you know that this thirst for more and more of worldly things and money and stuff, it might be in many countries, but it's not in every one. There's something different about the United States and about America that has led us to this thirst for more. There's more money and more stuff. And 
honestly, it has everything to do with the blessings of this country. You see, in, in many places or countries that you live, if you are born into a certain socioeconomic class, there is little to no chance of ever leaving that class. You're just stuck in that box. But the amazing blessing of this country, the reason why so many people flock here, is that although you might be born in a certain class or born with little, if you work hard, if you apply yourself, if you spend time and energy, you can likely provide your family and yourself with a lifestyle that's different than what you grew up with, that's even maybe a little bit better. And that's a good thing. In fact, it's a, it's a great thing. And yet, all of this opportunity in our culture has led to the cultural obsession with accumulating more. So, how much money does it take? Or how much money would it take for you to be happy? And when I say happy here, I'm not just saying today, you know, smile on your face, feeling good. I, I'm saying there's, there's a lot of things that come with the accumulation of more. Um, happy is not worrying about how to pay next month's bills, all right? How much would it take for you to have what you would call a comfortable living style? How much would it take for you to have... Um, enough to have that emergency fund in case something came up that you weren't planning on and you're able to not have to charge it or to take out a loan. You know, some years ago, someone did a survey on this. And they actually asked people of all different socioeconomic levels what the answer would be to this. And so as an example, uh, there was a group in the survey that made about $35,000 a year as a family. And they asked, how much would it take for you to be happy, to have those three things that I talked about, security and comfort, an emergency fund? And on average, the answer was they would need about $75,000 a year to be happy. So in the survey, they also surveyed people that made about $75,000 a year. And you'd think that when they asked those people about how much they would need, they'd say, we're good, we're happy, we got what we need. But you know, without me even saying it, as well as I do, that's not the answer that they got. Those who made $75,000 a year said it would take $150,000 a year on average. And those who made $150,000 a year said it would take $250,000. And on and on the scale, no one was finding happy. Everyone else needed, well, everyone's answer was exactly the same. Everyone had the exact same answer. What it would take for them to be happy is more. More than what I currently have. Now, this is not a message where the preacher is going to tell you that money and stuff can't bring some semblance of happy to your life or joy. I value at this church that everything we do has a realness to it. So let me be real with you. It's fun to get a new car. It can bring joy. 
There's some happy when you're driving your car or your SUV and you're pulling a boat behind you and you're going to go out on Lake Marion on a beautiful summer day. There's, there's some joy there. There's joy in being able to buy the little things of life like a new pair of earbuds or some Jordans or even an expensive cup of coffee. <laughs> if you've ever walked down the steps after you've just remodeled your kitchen and it has the new bells and whistles or the new cabinets or whatever, there's, there's some happy that you feel. And that's good. That's okay. Um, if you've ever been able to go south on vacation during January, February, March, April, or May in Minnesota. It's amazing what it can do for you. It does bring a certain amount of happy and joy. And on the flip side, let me be real too. Um, if you're someone right now who isn't sure how to pay next month's rent or next month's utilities, there's a pressure and a tension and a heaviness to that that's really difficult. And sometimes people get into a situation like that even if or when they manage their money well. Sometimes that can happen. But for the most of us, I would say, according to statistics, for 95 plus percent of us in this room and watching online, we're doing okay. The Lord has blessed us with stuff and with money. And so what's the myth What's the, the myth of more that we want to talk about today? Well, it's our first filling. It goes this way. Here's the myth of more. If I had more, I'd be happy more. <laughs> that in this myth, there is this idea behind it, and many of us think this way, even though maybe we didn't realize it in the past, that there is this next level that we get to, or this, this next neighborhood that we might get to, or this next car that we get to, or this next ability to go on uh, two vacations a year, or one, or whatever, that if we get there, well, then we'd be happy more. And my friends, more happy does not come from more money. <laughs> And that's what we want to talk about today. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at a letter that um, a pastor in the first century named Paul wrote to uh, a younger gentleman named Timothy who was kind of coming up in the ranks of being a church planter and a Christian missionary. And I, I love this letter because you've got old Paul nearing the end of his life sort of downloading in his letter all of this amazing amount of wisdom that he's learned throughout the years of his life in hopes, I think, of allowing Timothy to maybe not fall into some of the same pitfalls that Paul did throughout his life or to avoid some of the same ways of thinking. And one of the areas that Paul felt compelled by God to write to Timothy about was a person's relationship with money and stuff. And so we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to dive into the middle of our text with this, what I would call, difficult verse. It says this, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and to many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and into destruction. Sounds very ominous, doesn't it? 
I think maybe we should start with first is who is exactly Paul writing about, those who want to get rich? Um, he is not talking to people who have the desire to earn more money at work or to get a promotion necessarily. He's not talking about people who have the desire to, to save so that they might be able to have a bigger house for their family or a, a larger car for their growing family necessarily. He's not necessarily talking about those people. Those can be good desires, good wishes, good wants. They're not necessarily sinful. What he's talking to or about are people who have substituted the pursuit of heavenly things or the pursuit of God or even a relationship with God to the overwhelming, never-ending search for significance and happy by, well, having more and getting rich. <laughs> the thing is, it's, it's funny here. There, I could preach an entire um, series just on this one verse. There's a lot in it. But it says that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. The, the Greek word there is the same word you'd use for like an animal trap, where the animal, unsuspecting animal doesn't know that there's danger there, then all of a sudden, whoom, it grabs it. That there's something about going after riches that seems innocent at first, but then gets you. What could that be? Well, here's one thing. What's the definition of rich? It's kind of ambiguous, isn't it? How do you know when you're there? I mean, people who earn 35,000 think it's 75,000. People who earn 75,000 think that it's 150,000. And so on and so forth. It's so ambiguous. Do you know how most people, whether they know it or not, define whether they're rich or not or affluent? by comparing what they have to other people around them. And so if you live in a wealthy country, you need more to feel rich, but if you live in a poor country, you don't need quite as much. That so often, our feeling of how blessed we've been or what we have, our satisfaction or contentment over it, has everything to do not with what we have, but with a comparison with other people. Let me give you a, a real-life example of this in my life. So uh, years ago, I remember when uh, Carrie and I were able to buy the very first car that was large enough for uh, our very first car that was large enough to hold our whole family of six. In fact, we still have it today. There are seven seats in it, and I remember buying it. I almost remember feeling a little bit guilty about it because my parents never had a car quite that nicely or that nice. And, I remember driving off the lot thinking, whoo, can't get much better than this. This is awesome. And then about a year later or so, I forget exactly, but I sat in one of my friend's cars. And in the car, and it was new at the time, he was able to adjust the temperature to the exact temp and to be able to have one side be one temp, the other side be other And I know this is very common nowadays, but it was brand new back then. And I'm like, my trailblazer has a blower fan. <laughs> and it's low, medium, and high. That's about it. I don't know what temperature it is in the back, but I'm sure it's cooler than what it is in the front because I'm closer to the fan, you know? And then you look around and there's cars and vehicles that, you know, 
this is all standard now, that have Bluetooth and let you know that one tire is slightly lower than it should be, and cameras so that you can back up. My kids need that, that's for sure. Um, so you can see where you're going and on and on and on. And I look at my Trailblazer. You know how much of that it has? None of it. It has four tires and a steering wheel, and you can turn it on, AM, FM radio, you know. But you know what it does have? It has everything it had when I drove it off the lot. Except the back windshield wiper doesn't work right now, but that's a different story. <laughs> and yet, I don't feel as happy about it as I did back then. Because so often, we find our feelings about what we have not based in what we have, but what in others have around us. And there is always more to be had. There's newer, better, bigger, nicer, prettier, and on and on and on. So to even be able to find happy in the midst of all this affluence, we need to set a baseline, don't you think? What does it mean to be rich? Well, the verse right preceding this, verse 9, verse 8 gives us a clue. Here's what Paul writes, Timothy writes, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And the American culture responds, I don't think so. <laughs> no way. And yet, for millennia, when people lived in the world, if they had warm clothes and a home that didn't leak and enough food to get them through the day and water that they didn't have to walk too far to go get from the well or the clean river, they felt like kings. It was a good day. And anything more than that, you're rich. What Paul is doing here is he's establishing the baseline that anything more than what we need for today puts us in the category of rich. I know some of you have been hoping and wishing and praying that you'd be rich. It's your lucky day. Our next fill-in, I have more than I need. I'm rich. You need to look at your spouse right now because some of you have been wanting to be rich and like, hey, baby, you've wanted this for a while. Pastor said it. We're rich. In fact, maybe you need to say it with me, and you can put as much emphasis as you want on this if you'd like, you know, just to make sure that your heart believes what your mouth is saying. Right, here we go. I have more than I need. I'm rich. Absolutely, absolutely. Next verse, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is one of the most misspoken and misinterpreted passages in the whole Bible. 
What you often hear people say is that money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says. And in fact, money is a good thing. God would not give you something that is evil of itself. And money can do good things. It can provide your family for the things that it needs. Money can provide for other people who are in need, and you can use it for good things. Money can be used to provide a community as people support a church with the one thing needful in Jesus Christ as you support that gospel ministry. This building was built not just because we prayed real hard and God you know, threw it to earth and there it is. This building was built because people gave money. Money is not the root of all evil. It says that the love of money. The putting it in a place of priority where it was never meant to be. The using it to find comfort and security and identity and self-assuredness and feeling better than the people around you type of thing. The love of money can be and is a root of lots of evil. You know, sometimes we think that things will get better when we get to that next level. In many ways, things only get harder. When you have almost nothing, you know what you're forced to do every day? It's like when you're sick. You're forced to turn to the Lord every day and to ask him to help you get through this next month or to help you figure out your retirement because the numbers just aren't adding up. It's when we have more that we begin to forget about God sometimes and to find our security in what we have, not in who we have. Last week, Pastor Matt uh, shared a proverb with us, a wise statement from Solomon. Here's, here's another one, Proverbs 18.11. It says that the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. It's the thing they use sometimes to find security in the present and security maybe in the future. They imagine it because it's not true. They imagine it because it won't do it. They imagine their riches as a wall too high to scale. And then a job gets lost. And then a stock market dips. And then someone gets sick. And then some bill they weren't expecting comes up. You see, money, it can't give you what you're ultimately looking for. And the good news is, we have something better than money. We have something better to find security in. And Paul hints at this just a few verses later. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, it's actually verse 17, but it says this. Command those who are rich. And who's, who's he talking to? Who are rich, people? I'm looking at them. Command those who have more than they need, those who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant about it, nor to put their hope in it. 
because it's so uncertain, but instead to put their hope in God who richly provides. With more does not always come more happy. With more often comes more challenges, more difficulty, more temptation. And the truth of the matter is that it'll never provide you with what you're looking for. Our next fill-in. What Paul is writing to Timothy is this, is that the giver is greater than the gifts. It seems so simple, doesn't it? But it's true. If you believe that all things come from God, the giver is always going to be greater than the gifts that he gives. The giver is always going to be more secure than the things that he gives. The giver is the one we trust in, not the things that he gives. Now, the whole key to this sermon, and more importantly to this text, is found in the very first verse that I skipped over on purpose. In that verse, we've talked about some of the dangers of wealth and the dangers of how more doesn't necessarily mean more happy. In this first verse, we find the solution to satisfaction. Paul writes, you're looking for great gain? Let me tell you what it is. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it says godliness with contentment. That word for godliness doesn't mean like perfection or anything like that. It means putting God in his proper spot, which is first place in our lives. That the thing we trust in the most, the thing we pursue, the thing that we have faith in the most is not the things of this world. It's not looking around, it's looking up. Godliness, that's a godly person with contentment. That's a general satisfaction in life. Now, how do we get that? How do we get content? This same Paul who wrote to Timothy wrote about how he had the secret to contentment in a different letter that he wrote called Philippians. Here's what he writes. You ready for it? He wrote, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. Paul is the perfect person to write about the benefits of having much and also the things that it can't do for you. Because when Paul was young in his 20s, he was on top of the light of life. He was powerful, he was rich, he was affluent, all those things. And then Jesus Christ came into his life. And God allowed it for all those things to be taken from him. For that following Jesus at times meant that he had almost nothing. He was hungry. He was on the run. He was shipwrecked. He knows what it is to be in need and to have plenty. I have learned through it the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. All right, what is it, Paul? Verse 13. I can do all this, or I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It's a recognition that I can't live one day on my own, but that God is the strength that I need, that Jesus is my strength, that he is the only way to have happy, to have joy, to have a future. 
see, here's how we so often try to conquer discontentment. We try to conquer it by filling up our lives with things. And yet what maybe we don't recognize until today is that discontentment is just an appetite. And the more you feed it, the more hungry you get. But that the key to finding happy in what we have and to finding contentment and satisfaction is more of a battle of the mind. It's a battle of the heart. It's deciding where we're going to look and what is it that we really need. It's a good question. What is it that you really need? I want you to imagine for a moment that instead of Adam and Eve being in the Garden of Eden, that it's you. And the, the first sin just happened. It was your sin or mine. And God comes down from heaven and he says, I will give you anything you want, one thing, whatever it is. And, and you're standing there and you recognize that this sin just destroyed the perfect world that you live in. And it also damaged your relationship with God and that heaven now is... Eternity is in the balance. And he says, one thing, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. What do you choose? A new car? A new house? The iPhone 15, because you know it's coming eventually. When you're standing there and eternity is in the balance, all of those things while so great and wonderful, they sound silly, don't they? It was meant to sound silly. Because here's what happened. God never asked Adam and Eve what they wanted. In his goodness, he just gave them what they needed. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul writes for you know the grace, the love of our Lord Jesus, the greatest love there ever was, that though he was rich, he had all things as God in heaven, yet for your sake, he gave it all up. He became poor. He became a human being. He lived through poverty and difficulty and sickness and even endured death on a cross so that you, through his poverty, might what? You're rich twice today that you might become rich, that you might be given the riches of heaven forever. You see, last villain, because of Jesus, I already have more. I have more peace. I have more than I deserve. I have more than I can fathom. I have more than this world could ever give. So, Two pieces of application. There's two questions that I want you to consider because the truth of the matter is, is that even with this mind and heart knowledge, we're going to get tempted. And 
we did not just solve discontentment forever in your life or in mine today. <laughs> but what can help? Well, do you know that all of us have certain areas of our lives that tend to fuel discontentment? And what it is for you is different than what it is for me. It might be a certain store. It might be a certain friend. It might be a certain website that fuels that discontentment. It can be a lot of different things. Here's the question that I want you to consider this week. What can you do to become less aware of the things that cause you discontentment? There's power behind that. What do you need to view less? Where do you need to go less? Where should you not go at all? <laughs> Parade of homes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what can you do to become less aware of the things that cause you discontentment? And then the corollary of that is this. What can you do to become more aware of what those around you need? One of the antidotes to discontentment is generosity. And when we spend more time thinking about how we can make a difference and how we can give instead of what we can get, it's amazing how joy happens more. More stuff won't bring us more happy, but Jesus does. And I pray that the Lord bless us as we continue every day to battle this temptation to find happy in the things that we have. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to really dig into a topic that affects all of us in this world and in this country especially. Dear Lord, I think that every single one of us struggle with it in one way or another, and I pray that your word today just hits people's hearts in the right way, that it convicts us of the things that we need to change, but ultimately gives us hope and knowledge of knowing that because of Jesus, we are rich. We pray for your guidance and blessing upon us as we look every day to find the, the happiness, not by looking around, but by looking up to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.